1: Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Steven Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Live Star Death Star Edition. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 2016. On today's show, Rogue One, it's a, a spin-off of the Star Wars franchise, the first modular standalone film in the series. I cannot wait to ask Dana Stevens, is this a good movie or just a naked ploy for more money? And then Search Party, it's a new comedy mystery on TBS. It's about a small crew of 20-something friends searching for an old, College acquaintance who's gone missing. And finally, it's Wonder Week on Slate. A Slate has devoted a week of coverage to the wonderful Stevie Wonder. We'll discuss the great and ongoing legacy of Stevie Wonder with Slate's own pop critic, Jack Hamilton. Joining me today is Slate writer and editor Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hello. Dan, are you on book leave?
2: I am officially on book leave, though. Here I am in the office recording a podcast. So go figure.
1: In what state of uh, fetal crouch are you? As a way of indicating where you are in this process, uh, I am not in, nearly in the kind of fetal crouch
2: that you have been in for the last four years. Is that right?
3: <laughs> well, you're you're in the starting gate crouch, right, Dan? You're <laughs> right. basically like you've got your feet right. on the blocks.
2: I'm about to launch into this project that I'm sure will go really well and will not actually drive me insane. Uh,
1: Dana Stevens, uh, can you set Dan Quist straight on
2: this uh, Uh,
3: From what I've heard of Dan's book project, it's definitely going to drive him and possibly every member of his family insane, but I still can't wait to read the book.
1: We're joined by Dana Stevens, of course, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. Um, Dana, before we dig in, uh, I imagine we have some business.
3: Let's see. Uh, Yes, I believe that our only business today is that our Slate Plus segment, for those of you who are Slate Plus members, will be uh, a lightning round in which Dan Coyce, I believe, Dan, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, you're going you're gonna to go through past shows you've listened to and yell things that you've yelled into your, your headphones and see if we answer you this time.
2: I'm going to make you answer for some of your previous bad opinions.
3: The stockades are coming out basically for Slate Plus today. And the only other piece of business we have today is to remind all of our listeners that if you're not a Slate Plus member or someone in your family or friend group is not, it makes a great Christmas gift. Helps to support Slate and all the journalism that we do. And so if you're interested in looking into that, you just go to slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show.
1: Rogue One is the first standalone movie out of the Star Wars universe. It stars Felicity Jones. She's the daughter of an engineer who was all but kidnapped, more or less kidnapped, when she was a small child to work on the Death Star. She's now come of age and is being sent on a mission to track her father down, and thereby finds herself the leader of a crew of intergalactic rebels. Anything more really almost spoils it. We'll get into why a little bit, hopefully without spoiling it. I will say that it stars Diego Luna, Forrest Whitaker, Riz Ahmed, among many others. Let's listen to a clip. Why does she
3: get a blaster and I don't? What? I know how to use it. That's what I'm afraid of. Give it to me. We're going to Jeddah. That's a war zone.
1: That's not the point of...
3: Where'd you get it? I found it.
1: I find that answer vague and unconvincing. Trust goes both ways. You're letting her keep it.
2: Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you?
1: It's high. Let's get going. It's very high. I think it spoils nothing to say that this movie, Dana, is a modular pop out from the very original, the very first Star Wars movie. It tells the backstory of the creation of the Death Star uh, from a somewhat unexpected angle. And I also don't think it spoils it to say that the payoff of the movie, the urgency behind the movie involves how that modularly pops back into the first and iconic film. Um, what did you make of that choice? And um, how did the other creative choices uh, that followed from it play out in your estimation?
3: You know, I was so disappointed in this movie. I was I was excited for its, its modularness and, and its relative kind of smallness and, what would the word be, kind of kind of random nature in relation to the whole Star Wars series. I don't get now, having seen it, exactly why it's supposed to be a huge exception to the, you know, canonical Star Wars world that we all know, because even if it only has a couple of the same characters and they seem to be mainly there for fan service, it, as you say, does clearly slot itself into this vast history of the galaxy we've been telling for all these years. and. I don't know. I guess I was maybe hoping for something that had a little bit more of a a rogue feeling as in as in the title and that had only a glancing relationship with the Star Wars universe we knew and that therefore in the way that say Deep Space 9 could take the Star Trek universe into a different place that Rogue One would do something like that for Star Wars. In my estimation having seen this movie, all it was was a very subpar typical entry in the Star Wars canon. It it seemed, although of course it looked better and and, and felt more professional, but it seemed more of a piece with the sad three George Lucas tack-ons of the early 2000s, in that it was ringing a lot of familiar Star Wars bells about the Force and, you know, people being other people's fathers or not. (laughs) But there just felt to me to be so little fresh in it. Even though the film has a female lead, as last year's The Force Awakens did, played by Felicity Jones, That character feels so unfleshed out and so just sort of rubber stamped out of a character factory that whether she was male or female or not made no difference to me. I was amazed to see at the end of this movie that the authors of the screenplay were Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy, two great screenwriters who have independently made terrific movies. To me, this movie was an almost complete failure. The second entire hour of it seemed to be nothing but indistinguishable space battles on a different strangely named planet that you couldn't remember every 10 minutes mm.
1: dan an almost complete failure what did what do you think
2: i would describe this movie as an almost complete success dana uh. <laughs> oh,
1: dear. i mean the
2: reviews have been like markedly split like very clearly many many people are very angry about this movie big you know many star wars fans or just casual viewers are very angry about this movie like you dana feel that it's a Either just a failure as a movie or, if they feel more strongly about the Star Wars universe, a betrayal of all the Star Wars universe means. Uh, And many other people, like me, thought the movie was really fun, thought that it was a pretty great space adventure, that it was exciting, had a bunch of great characters that we really liked, and that the modularness of it provided sort of some extra eye and brain candy along the way. But did not necessarily make it feel derivative. I mean one of the things that I think is most interesting about this as a Star Wars movie, as Forrest Wickman wrote in his review in Slate, is that it's a Star Wars movie that tries to expand the boundaries of the things a Star Wars movie can do. The the stuff it can shrug off from the Star Wars mythology, the mentors it doesn't necessarily uh, have to kill in the second act finale – Um, the brass burst, it doesn't have to give us at the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, it's trying to find new ways to tell stories in this universe. And while it doesn't full deep space nine and explore a completely different set of concerns and issues than the original star Wars, it does, I think, um, find a way to be a much different, much more adult, much more violent, much
1: more exciting movie than most of the actual star Wars movies have been. Hmm. I, I I apparently saw the movie that Dana saw, but not the one that Dan did. Um, That's a bummer. I, Mine was really good. I, I... <laughs> well, mine wasn't. Mine mine had all the um, aesthetics, trappings, paraphernalia, and plot beats of a Star Wars movie, but with none of the heart that the best ones have had. Um, it will go on to make all the money. So I guess, Dan, you're going to win the argument um, in terms of p But I, I think in terms of posterity, you may lose it. The, the movie is anything but rogue. I, I felt as though it was a delivery system for um, familiarity. Uh, it, and it completely lost the chance to do something clever. And I would throw it back to you and say, is there a single line from this movie that's memorable? A single line of dialogue? single beat or moment where a character comes into focus in some new or interesting way? I didn't hear one laugh. I heard maybe a couple, and I saw it with a bunch of kids uh, in you know, the heart of suburban America. I was not at some snickering East Village art house. Um, I heard two or three very half-hearted laughs from the audience. Um, People rightfully thrill along to the, you know, stations of the Star Wars Cross. They love the familiarity. It delivered that, I thought, quite expertly, but nothing, it delivered nothing else. I mean, you didn't think it
2: delivered action? If it's meant to be like a war movie with like this gang of, spies in the middle who we want to see succeed in this mission does it succeed in that
1: no not at all and i'll tell you it's because of a couple, for two reasons one is that okay rogue one it's modular you don't you you know you can do all kinds of sort of sub mythic or non-mythic or or subversive things to the main star wars franchise uh so you can make a movie that's a little bit more like guardians of the galaxy and a little bit less like you know one of the middle trilogy movies um they they did not go in that direction at all. The humor is to me completely dead. The characters are not quirky. There's portentous self seriousness throughout the whole thing. Um, There's, As I say, there isn't one memorable line of dialogue, and furthermore, none of these character—I mean, uh, with the exception of Donnie Yen's character, which I thought was kind of wonderful and wonderfully played—I thought all of the characters were completely forgettable. And one other point I want to make is that the most lucrative thing you can do is to create a universe that people want to go back to, back to, and back to. That's fine. That's what Marvel's done. It's what Star Wars has done. You have this legacy brand of Star Wars, and what's been forgotten. In reviving it in order to produce a universe that's like the Marvel Universe, i.e. capable of all these modular pop-outs. So you can reliably make between, I mean, let's be honest, between $500 million and a billion dollars each time you roll one of these out. You know um, what's been lost is the slapdash modesty of the first movie, which was what was really characteristic about it. It was it was it was ho- it was hokey. People felt like its charm was its hokiness. and along the way, Lucas became a multi-billionaire and he invested it with, it with his self-seriousness, and in my in my estimation, lost what was raffish and kind of truly, truly wonderful about the original. So your
2: complaint about this is that it's not half-assed and
1: amateurish like the original Star Wars? But Dan, you know that that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the original movie, as you and I both know, had a certain uh, Buck Rogers charm, which was exactly what Lucas himself said he was shooting for. And along the way, it's become mythic and self-important. Now, you may derive some satisfaction that I can't understand from its mythic self-importance. I'm just telling you what launched this whole thing in the first place for better and for worse, has been lost. Sure, but I guess my
2: counterargument would be that this felt like a Star Wars movie that dispensed with a lot of the mythic self-importance. That The Force Awakens last year with all the talk about, you know, where is Luke and he's off trying to find the first Jedi temple and long discussions about who has the Force and who doesn't. Like that felt, for all that I enjoyed that movie, that felt like it still had problems with that. Uh, Lucasian self-importance that you correctly pinpoint in the in the prequel trilogy but this one felt so self-contained and so and and considering only a very small question which is can these rebel spies steal the plans in time like so in that Mm. respect it felt to me more like a heist movie and much less like a sort of overburdened fraught Freighted with important Star Wars movie of the type that I too have often disliked.
3: I will say that of all these movies' faults, I I think self importance is not one that I would ascribe to this to this particular movie. I mean, if if anything, I think it was almost rushing through in a way, rushing through the exposition of the first half of the movie to get to the endless battle scenes of the second half. Right,
1: but what motivated the whole movie, Dana, is 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 the climax that we're not going to you know, spoil, right? That That's the entire movie really is telling this, is kind of in a funny way filling a plot hole from the very first Star Wars. In order to invest the movie with any urgency, one had to believe that this was the most important thing in the world. And I, anyway, I couldn't go along with it. But anyway, Dan Coyce wins. The movie's going to make one trillion dollars um, and everyone walks away vindicated.
2: I don't know that that is necessarily justification for my argument. Look, you are right that these are in many ways that all star Wars movies, just like all Marvel movies and all big franchise movies are widgets, you know, machine cooked to go down the gullet of the American public as, uh, seamlessly and smoothly as possible and to make the maximum amount of money. Uh, and Dana, you are right that this movie in particular, uh, was refabricated a lot in the shop, right? It went through a lot. It went through huge reshoots. There reports, though, I, you know, who knows exactly what the real story was, but the reports that at least as much as like 30 or 40 percent of the movie was reshot. Um, Tony Gilroy has a screenwriting credit, even though he did not write any, any of the original screenplays because he was hired to write those new scenes and in fact oversaw reportedly a lot of the reshoots and the edit of the reshoots. And so he got a screenwriting credit late in the game, along with Chris Weitz, who wrote one of the very early drafts. There's a great playlist post trying to sort of untangle the story of who wrote what and how it changed um, even very, very late in the game. You know, all those things suggest a company that is simply trying to, you know, make as much money as possible. And of course, they are trying to make as much money as possible. But I also think that the movie succeeds on its own terms as a kind of gritty, fun, action-adventure pitched at an audience older and a little bit – not not even really sophisticated but maybe more jaded than the typical Star Wars audience. Like for example, this is not a Star Wars movie to take your four-year-old to even if he loved all the previous Star Wars movies. This one is potentially going to traumatize him or her. And so to me, it feels like it is not necessarily incompatible to say that yes, it is going to make a lot of money because it has a Star Wars name on it. But nevertheless, it does do interesting new things with the Star Wars formula. And it just didn't feel at all to me like a soulless product. It felt to me like a almost soulful product.
3: Hmm. Yeah, Dan, I mean, I guess this this was this was an, a perfectly fine entry in the genre for somebody who was really interested in every possible permutation of Star Wars that, that there could be. It happened to fill in a slot of the story that seemed really uninteresting to me, given that we figure out pretty soon into this movie – basically what the spoiler is going to be and basically sort of what the historical time frame in the Star Wars universe this movie takes place in and so all of that stuff felt at once over familiar and not exploring anything new I saw a tweet going around about this movie right after it opened that was being much mocked and derided which was someone saying that this was the first Star Wars movie that felt like it was an actual an actual war movie that it took place in a war zone and I to some degree would agree with that the the, the action scenes that which were just one after another for the last half or so felt almost like Peter Berg action scenes at times. And there was, as you say, Dan, somewhat of a more a darker and more gritty sense that this is a real war in in which real bodies are dying. And it's not just sterile stormtroopers falling off high bridges. And so if that's a place that you think is interesting for the Star Wars universe to go, that is something that this movie opens up.
1: All right, team Dana, uh, I didn't like it, but many people um are enjoying it and maybe you did too. So to come and tell us at facebook.com/culturefest what you thought of Rogue One, the latest entry in the Star Wars uh, sweepstakes. All right, moving on. Search Party is a single-camera dark comedy about a group of four existentially stranded and self-absorbed 20-somethings whose old college acquaintance has disappeared. The show centers on Dory, played by Alia Shawkat. Dory is one of life's true punching bags, a personal assistant to a self-absorbed rich housewife, girlfriend to a self-absorbed boyfriend, friend to a comically self-absorbed actress. You are probably picking up a pattern. At this point, her life only takes on meaning and purpose when she decides to try to solve the mystery of a missing college acquaintance. Why don't we listen to a clip?
0: Do you guys remember that girl, Chantal Witherbottom? Mm Hmm. Uh, No. Who is that? I do feel like I remember that name. She was like she was like this girl, you know, we went to college with her. She I'm just trying to think of a way you would remember her. Um here, look. Okay, oh.
3: Remember? Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, she sucked. Why'd she suck? Because she had nothing to offer. She was always like brushing
1: her hair in public. It's yeah. like, brush it at home, please.
3: Right. She was always just
2: like around. And she was, um, I and mean, she was very
0: jealous of me.
2: Do you? It was. It was like it no, wasn't always nice. No. It was like nice
0: because, picture though. Hey, big man! Know, I
2: remember, it was like off the bat, I was cast
1: as a freshman in all the place. and
2: you know, it was like some people got it, but her job was to read lines with me,
0: so she didn't like that. Well, she's gone missing.
1: Dan, I- I'm curious what you made of this show. There's something incredibly familiar about it. A bunch of friends sitting around a coffee shop uh, being super clever, but also kind of annoyingly solipsistic. Uh, they're young. They're urbanites. Uh, they live in some version of Manhattan or Brooklyn. Uh, there's something unfamiliar about it. It's structured you know, not around go-nowhere comedy, but a, uh, around a, a mystery. Uh, what, uh, what struck you about this?
2: So to first issue a disclaimer after we decided to do the show, once I started watching it, I discovered that someone I know is a writer for the show, although I have not watched any episodes that he has written yet. He wrote episodes later in the season. Um, So that said, uh, I am very intrigued by the uh, structural challenge the show seems to set up for itself, which is to get us to enjoy watching a show in which pretty much all the characters are just the fucking worst. just dickheads and assholes uh, are the very least sort of self-absorbed uh, babies who are not – don't really have a place in the world and are struggling to find it but often are, are so unable to look beyond themselves that they don't even realize they don't have a place in the world. That said, it succeeded at that surprisingly well. Like I – I, after watching four episodes, I was really into the tone and mode of the show. I really enjoyed hanging out with these horrible people and finding and identifying the ways in which I am horrible just like them. So, so far, it seems to me like a surprising success. I agree with you that the familiarity of it is striking at first, and yet. What I'd love to for us to talk about a little bit is the way that that ends up sort of being a secret weapon for the show and that the familiarity of its structure becomes more and more unnerving the weirder and weirder the show gets and the more and more awful its characters get. Like placing those characters all talking around a table in a, such a familiar mode um, becomes really Odd to watch when you realize that they are talking past each other, as in that clip we just heard, and truly, really don't care about anything besides themselves, and can only view anything in the world as, uh, in terms of how it affects them and their personal foibles and uh, and obsessions. And so, I found that like a fascinating thing to go through. I have no idea how long I will be able to take it, but right now I'm really into it.
3: Dan, you've seen a little bit more than me. I've seen only two episodes, although I was dying to see more, but it was just too late to stay up and keep watching. I think what is most interesting to me, even just as talking from based on the first two episodes, is that that format, which, as you say, we're all very over familiar with a bunch of obnoxious 20 something sitting around talking in New York, that it gives way to this very strange sort of um, postmodern feminist noir or something in which I get the impression that the main goal of this series, the main interest of this series, will be just just as with um, with Twin Peaks. You know, in part, we were looking for who killed Laura Palmer. But of course, we were also exploring the whole town's underbelly. And I think the underbelly we're exploring in this show is going to be the psyche of Dory, the main character played really, really wonderfully by Alia Shawkat. Um, and And the way that this... Obsession with Chantal, the disappeared girl, starts. I think. I mean, it's my theory, Dan, to lift her out of that world of solipsism and to start. Even though at first it's 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 her it's a kind of self obsession that she's interested in finding the girl. I get the feeling that it's going to be sort of a moral journey for her as well as an epistemological journey. The way every mystery is.
1: I, I think that that Dana, you put your finger on exactly what will make or break the show, which is that she is the missing person. Right, Dory is not the ex. College acquaintance because they, as they emphasize comically over and over and over again, the the missing person really is just an acquaintance. They actually have no connection to this person whatsoever. Dory is the hole whole at the uh, center of her own life, which comes out in the first couple of episodes. Which I, wa- which I watched. What what I desperately need Dan is for this show to use that to make her real, because as of now, the construct of the show is. You know, late Seinfeld, kind of everybody other than me is unreal. They're so hateful, I'm justified in treating them instrumentally and selfishly. And this is the leap that Seinfeld sort of finally took in that final episode. Therefore, I too am hateful. Therefore, you're hateful for watching. I mean, the kind of circle of contempt of Larry David went boundless sort of towards the end of Seinfeld and said we were all kind of implicated in it. And what I'm wondering is, is it the case that Dory later on in the show gets lifted out of this solipsism and actually becomes a sympathetic human being? Everyone is so intrinsically hateful around her. She's a cipher for tolerating it. Right. Like why like if we are meant to
2: believe that there is some interesting moral thing at the core of her, what is it that keeps her at the table with those like awful people? So having watched 4 episodes, I will say it is not yet clear where where it goes and i'm not even sure yet which kind of show i want it to be do i want it to be a show that is in fact larry david ish and is really not interested in pulling dory out of the muck that she currently resides in and is instead interested in essentially condemning us the watchers of first girls and now search party for reveling in the kind of awful antics of uh privileged White people in Brooklyn, uh, or is it a show that does intend to to make that character the one who sort of overcomes herself, who finds herself and finds within herself some kind of moral courage, not only presumably to figure out what the hell is going on with Chantal, but to face the things in her life and the people in her life who are wrong and bad? Um, and I'm not sure what kind of show I want. I see why one would be easier to swallow than the other but i can't tell yet whether one would be more sort of aesthetically successful to me
3: you know on that dan i just i have a feeling and i know i've seen less of the show than you but i have a feeling that its goal whether it'll achieve it or not i don't know but that its goal is to do more the latter and to 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 show some kind of moral growth or some sort of struggle for an actual ethical anchor in the world that it isn't just empty you know larry davidism through and through. And the, the one line that I scribbled down from, I believe it was the second episode, when when Alia Shawcat's character is sitting down with this woman played by Rosie Perez, who, not to give too much away, meets her as she's trying to make a police report about Chantal's, something that she knows about, about Chantal's case. And Rosie Perez kind of tracks her down and starts following her around saying, I know something about the case too. There's a moment that they're sitting in a cafe talking it over. And Dory, Alia Shawcat's character says, I'm so tired of things that don't make any sense or I'm so tired of of nothing mattering. And uh, and and it seemed to me like in a way that was a kind of thesis statement for the show, you know, that it took place in a world where nothing had any fixed meaning but that there was a search for fixed meaning that that was sort of leading her on this quest.
2: Right, it definitely takes place in a world with no fixed meaning, right? You know, we in the sense that even individual words people say often mean the exact opposite of what they say or um, in an episode that I think you guys have not seen yet, a college acapella group can sing a mournful version of Since You've Been Gone, uh, slightly rejiggered to try to make it applicable to their missing former classmate, uh, but like in a way that strips the song of any actual substance or context at all. And yes, everything that these people say or do lacks meaning and doesn't matter. And yes, I, I too saw it as her quest to be part of something that matters.
1: Mm-hmm. We're at this weird moment in the history of television writing. It must be sort of like what it was like in the aftermath of, you know, Mo- Mozart showing people what could be done with um, music in a way that, that that something opened up. Everyone saw that there was this new possibility. And for probably more than a generation, people simply imitated Mozart, and it was very liberating at first. Um, but after a while, it just, it becomes a set of repetitive ticks in a way, regardless of how technically facile people are with the mode. And I feel as though TV comedy writing is now like that. I'm amazed at its virtuosity. I mean this show is incredibly well written. It's it couldn't be sharper in a sense. Um, but what I wonder is when whether they can do something truly virtuosic, which is really sort of make a statement about the st- sterility of repetition both in young people's lives now as they imitate people who are 10 years older than than they are who were themselves imitating what they had seen growing up on Seinfeld with the tendency to um, produce this Mozartian virtuosity to no purpose. I mean, the, the, the fact that it's structured as a mystery to be solved by a young woman who feels evacuated by her social circumstances means that it seems to be aware that something new and different has to happen, both in the lives of young people and in the genres that 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 describe their lives. And so I, I find it very promising and want to watch it till the end of the season.
2: Yeah, that's very astute. I mean I do think that the the mystery element in particular does suggest that the people creating the show know that they cannot just play out the string in in sort of one of the modes that we are all really familiar with. Do you guys feel like a satisfactory solution to the mystery is a requirement for the show to be successful?
3: I guess it depends what you mean by satisfactory. I think not being taken down some sort of annoying J.J. Abrams rabbit hole is key to enjoying the whole show. I don't know that finding out exactly what happened to Chantal is key to the whole show for me. Although I do think that it's it's very interesting that the show keeps slipping in what appear to be not flashbacks, but current present day images of Chantal on the run so that there's it's clear that in, in addition to this, you know, symbolic epistemological mystery that's building in the Alia Shawkat character's mind, there's actually also a real girl with a real problem on the run somewhere. So how it will bring those two together, I don't know. But I think I, I'm, I'm maybe liking this show more than either of you. Like, I think it's really, really unusual. And I was expecting a piece of when I heard that it was sort of about these, these hipsters on a, on a neo-noir mission, I thought it was going to be sort of like Bored to Death, a show that always bored me to death. But maybe it's just because the, the heroine is a girl and she's so wonderfully played by Alia Shawkat, who probably most people remember from Arrested Development. Something about that combination of factors was enough to hook me.
1: Search Party is on TBS. Uh, we were very intrigued. These guys bumped me over the fence. I'm uh, now devoted to watching it um, through to the end. Uh, check it out and please tell us what you think of it. We, we do want to know. Facebook.com slash Culturefest. All right, moving on. Stevie Wonder enjoyed maybe the greatest commercial and creative streak in the history of popular music, uh, The Side of the Beatles. I think it has to be added. But um, so says Jack Hamilton, Slate's pop critic. He's also a professor of American Studies at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. It's always a pleasure to have Jack Hamilton on the show. Welcome back.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: All right, before we dig into the conversation, why don't we just remind people, uh, if they need reminding, of, of what Stevie Wonder's music sounds like. As a little background, I want to start with Dan Coyce. Dan, I, there's uh, what was the impulse around creating a package around the work of Stevie Wonder? Because um, it, it has this wonderful feel, especially after the events of 2016, it has the wonderful feel of deciding to say nice things about a person while they're still alive. I mean, that was exactly it. And, and Jack addressed this
2: pretty neatly, I think, in the introduction he also wrote for the package. But it was inspired by a conversation that we had around the DC office Uh, A couple weeks after Prince died. And, you know, that had been the second major music figure death of the year after David Bowie. And in each case, Slate, the culture department had gone into, you know, sort of panic mode. Uh, which you know sent us searching the ether for any writer we could find with something interesting and memorable to say about these people who died while we also wrote and edited pieces. And it was stressful and difficult, and we were very sad about the deaths, but it was also sort of wonderful to revisit all this work by these people to sort of collaboratively celebrate and mourn The life and work of these incredible artists and it made us feel like – and Josh Levine in the DC office was the one who specifically said this. Wouldn't it be great if we could do this for someone if they hadn't died? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we thought, oh, that would be nice. It would be nice to celebrate the – the work of someone who, if they died, we would be so angry that we hadn't told them how much we loved them. Uh, and now we can. And we tossed a lot of names around and I think the sort of Wonder Week theory is one you could apply to any number of cultural geniuses in the world. Um, but we settled on Stevie Wonder, a guy who feels a little bit underappreciated now, but who is who is indescribably great and whose work will live on for centuries. And it just so happened, happily, that Jack uh, loves Stevie Wonder more than he (laughs) loves anything on earth, I think. And so he wrote a beautiful introduction, which sort of tried to lay this question out. You know, what do we owe the people we love, the artists we love the most? And at the very least, do we owe them a little bit of praise while they're still around to hear it?
0: Yeah, basically when Dan brought this idea to me, uh, I pretty much volunteered to write every single post myself for free. Um, <laughs> so this is music
1: definitely. to an editor's ears. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> all right well let's give let's give listeners a little bit of background i mean his music is universally known but maybe his uh, full story isn't um he had been a child prodigy and star he'd been making records for motown since the age of 11 jack on his 21st birthday he gets freedom in the form of a big royalty check and he he used that creative freedom fully
0: yeah, basically so Stevie it's really so he signed to Motown when he was 11 years old um, which is crazy and signed this uh kind of rolling contract um that he that would continue throughout his uh basically childhood and and you know long adolescence and then when he was 21 years old this you know that at that point he'd been with Motown for 10 years um And he lets his contract expire. And but and aside from that, as you mentioned, uh, his royalties had been held in a trust. So his twenty-first birthday hits. He lets his contract expire, and also he's got he suddenly has access to all of his back royalties from Motown, which puts him into a pretty extraordinary um, negotiating position with Motown. He's basically now a free agent. He's one of the hottest stars in music. Um, and he's also financially independent, like he can really he can go wherever he wants, which allows him then to negotiate this for the time unprecedented deal with Motown that gave him um, a much higher royalty rate, uh, gave him control of his own publishing. And most crucially, it gave him complete artistic control over his uh, over his recordings going forward.
1: And just describe uh, what he did with that with that freedom uh, over the next you know four five six records. I mean, it's a period of a very few years, right? And we're talking nineteen seventy one to nineteen seventy six, roughly.
0: Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's really It really is more almost seventy two to seventy six. Seventy one is when he turns twenty one, um, and then uh, shortly before he turns twenty two, in early nineteen seventy two, he releases Music of My Mind, which was his first. Album uh, that he that he made under his New Deal, um, and it's just it's an incredible work. It's you know he he performs almost every instrument on it. There's a trombone played that he doesn't play, uh, and there's a guitar solo at one point that he doesn't play. <laughs> but everything else on the record is him. Um, and then and music, after Music of My Mind, later that same year, he follows that up with Talking Book, um, which is really kind of like when when it really starts hitting its stride. Talking Book has Superstition and You Are the Sunshine of My Life on it, both of which hit number one. The virtuosity and genius are there, and suddenly, also, he's he's just just like mind blowing commercial force, um, and that continues with then Inner Visions in 1973. Um shortly after Intervisions, he has a terrible car accident where he um he slips into a coma for several days, uh, makes a full recovery, and then 1974 releases Fulfillingness, his first finale. Um and, and I should mention that Intervisions and his first finale both won album of the year at the Grammys. Um and uh and then in 1975, it's actually kind of weird. He doesn't make an album. Um he's he's very disillusioned with uh, the sort of state of politics in the United States. He flirts with the idea of leaving the country and moving to Ghana um, to basically work and do, do sort of charity work there. Um, he's talked out of doing this uh, and then goes into the studio and uh, records songs in the Key of Life, which is a sprawling <laughs> double album. <laughs> uh, Jesus which comes, Christ. Yeah, which comes out in, 19, in summer of 76. Or maybe early fall of 76, and you know, it debuts at number one on the Billboard charts, so sells over 10 million copies, uh, once again wins album of the year at the Grammys, um, and yeah, wins the village voice Paz, and job poll. I mean, it's just an astonishing run. I mean, and the other thing about Stevie in this period, he's also Writing and producing albums for his ex-wife, Syrita Wright, uh, which are great. If people aren't familiar with those, I strongly encourage people to check those out. He's also writing hits for Rufus and Chaka Khan.
1: Tell me something good. Ooh. Tell
2: me that you like it,
0: yeah. Just, I mean, the level of productivity is just, is just mind-boggling.
2: In your piece, you describe it as his classic period, the polite phrase for when Stevie spent
1: five years ferociously dunking on the entire history. of <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Jack, why don't we put this, um, why don't we put this period in, in two contexts? Maybe um, the first is, as you say, it was the Nixon years, right? So it was, yeah. it was dark. I mean, we were finding out about Cambodian bombings and then eventually Watergate. Um There are a couple of different ways to go in response to that. Popular culture can be dark uh, as well, which the Hollywood movies were, maybe for the first time in their history. Mm -hmm. Um, But popular music was exuberant, especially um, Stevie Wonder offered this. uh, It was complex, but it was also very, very upbeat. Um, And there's no doubt in my mind it helped some people survive those years. And then the second context quickly would be... um, his contribution to album rock as an African American was at that time maybe somewhat anomalous.
0: Yeah. I mean Stevie is, you know, he and he he's also really at the vanguard of making kind of anti-Nixon pop music in the in the 70s. And yeah, as you mentioned, in this very, very uh upbeat and sort of joyous way. But at the same time, you know, this real he had he had a really, really strong political uh conscience and was someone who 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 made a lot of really angry music. Like I think of Um, You Haven't Done Nothing, which is uh, a a big hit off Fulfillingness's first finale um, that hits number one in 1974. Like that to me is maybe the angriest pop song to ever hit number one on the Billboard charts. I mean, it is just like a screed denouncing Nixon. Um, and it's an amazing song. But yeah, I mean, part of it was that, you know, a song like Superstition also is quite dark in terms of its in terms of its themes. But, you know, he's just the music itself is so irresistible. He was able to make all these very strong uh, anti-Nixon statements, all these statements about sort of, you know, United States domestic and foreign policy Uh in these pieces of music that were so irresistible, in terms of um, you know just the performance and the songwriting and his ability to craft these perfect pop songs um, that then became you know really uh, powerful vehicles for his for his political messages. And as for the second context, the the album rock was not um, hadn't previously been really privileged in R and B. There was there were these sort of racist stereotypes that African-American audiences weren't going to buy LPs. So uh, R&B was a very, very singles-driven format um, into the early 1970s, uh, by which point rock, rock had really moved to, to, to the album-oriented format and the album as being sort of the pinnacle of, seen as the pinnacle of artistic expression. Uh, and Stevie, you know, comes along, and I mean, to me, I think Stevie is, you know, one of, if not the greatest album artist. Like, I mean, just it, particularly that run in the 70s. I mean, what he did with the album as a form is just so incredibly uh, groundbreaking and 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 revolutionary.
3: The first name that popped into my mind when you talked about African-Americans recording kind of concept albums was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. That, that was before Stevie's Golden Age, wasn't it?
0: So it was right before, yeah, What's Going On comes out in 1971, and that's a very, very important part of this story, because Marvin Gaye was also on Motown, um, and Marvin Gaye uh, got in a real struggle with Barry Gordy about con- creative control over his work, um, and ultimately won, and was able to, you know, Barry Gordy very famously did not want to release What's Going On. He didn't think it was uh, going to be successful. Um and so when Marvin Gaye won that struggle with Gordy and released What's Going On, Stevie Wonder was on the verge of turning 21 as that was all happening. So Stevie Wonder is watching this unfold. So, yeah, What's Going On is definitely very, very important um, in, in the story of, of Stevie's move to this period.
3: Dan, as long as we've got you here and you are one of the people behind this brainchild of Wonder Week, which I'm really excited for, could you give us a little preview? It's only Tuesday now of Wonder Week. What else have we got coming up on Slate?
2: Uh, We have so much. We're in the end going to run, I think, 16 or 17 different pieces uh, about Stevie Wonder and his genius. Uh, We've already run two great pieces by Jack, plus something by Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, about how well Stevie wrote schmaltzy, sappy love songs.
3: I really love that. Carl on schmaltz. This is just the best.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the ultimate pairing of critic and, uh, and <laughs> That's so true. Um and uh but then, you know, we also had a really super fun piece from Seth Stevenson that's just sort of an aficionado's appreciation of Stevie Wonder's drumming. Um I wrote something to, that just came out Tuesday about uh Uh, about we can work it out his 1970 cover of the beatles we can work it out in which i declare it the greatest beatles cover of all time and in fact the only beatles cover that's better than the beatles version um and aisha harris slates aisha harris who uh whose parents were enormous stevie wonder fans and who grew up on stevie's stevie wonder's music has actually written three pieces for the package all of which are delightful um one of which uh is already out and it's about um it's just a beginner's guide to Stevie Wonder, but she also wrote this great piece today about the Black Birthday song. Are you guys aware of the Black Birthday song? Yep.
3: I just read Aisha on the Black Birthday song, and it was right, fabulous.
2: Right. So- so, uh, at at birthday parties um, for that are attended mostly by uh, African American celebrants, uh, there's an entirely separate birthday song that frequently is sung, and it's the "Happy Birthday" song that Stevie Wonder wrote for Martin Luther King as part of his long quest, eventually successful quest, to get Martin Luther King's birthday declared a national holiday. Totally fascinating and fun and surprising piece, uh, especially for clueless white people like me who didn't know there was a Black birthday song.
3: Speaking of clueless white people, I also just have to put a plug in for my own Stevie Wonder celebration, which was just a, a little post on the memory of hearing him sing Superstition on Sesame Street when I was a kid.
0: Oh, God, that footage is amazing.
1: Yeah.
3: Here, here. All right. Can, you, can we go
1: out on your favorite track post, let's say, 1980 uh, that people might not know?
0: So my favorite Stevie Wonder track from the 1980s is a song called Frontline um, that appears on his original Music uh compilation. It's from the early 1980s, and it is a song about coming home from the Vietnam War. Uh, and I actually think that it is one of, if not the best song written about the Vietnam War. Um, it's just an extraordinary piece of music and, and not that many people know it.
1: Uh, fantastic jack hamilton is a music writer for slate jack it is always a pleasure to have you on the show and it's wonder week on slate check it out jack thanks for coming in this was awesome
0: yeah thanks so much guys
1: Now is the moment on our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have?
3: (laughs) That was the longest pause yet between first syllable and last. I thought
1: it might be me, (laughs) but then it
2: (laughs) turned out. uh, (laughs) uh, uh.
3: That's true. You're one letter away.
1: Uh, Dana, what do you got?
3: Well, my endorsement this week comes from the experience of cleaning out my bookshelves and dusting them and reordering my books a bit. And in the process, just remembering and revisiting so many great books that I will never get rid of, even if they're taking up too much space. And one of them... This is a book that, in its time, I think was kind of on every literature student's shelf. And I'm not sure now, because of its age and its relative obscurism, whether it would be. So I'm just going to remind people of it. It's a book about Edgar Allan Poe by Daniel Hoffman, who's a professor, I believe, at the University of Pennsylvania. But it's a very unacademic book. And it has the memorable title Poe, 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 Poe. It has Poe's name seven times as its title. And uh, what's really remarkable to me about this study of Poe is that unlike most literary monographs on a single figure, it's not written in a tone of uh, of sort of um, hagiographic admiration or pure awe. It, it actually is more about the, the author's struggle with Poe through his life and all the different things that Poe and his work have meant to him. So, for example, this is the way the first chapter starts. Across the fly leaf of my old commemorative edition of the works of Edgar Allan Poe in 10 volumes, volume one, The Only One I Owned, A strong hand had written, I hate Poe, and signed my name. That hand was mine. I remember pressing the pencil so hard that the writing came through in reverse, a hieroglyph in secret code across the phrenological features of the author's daguerreotype. And I held the book up to the mirror, seeing Poe's image in my hand, in the image of his image, in the image of my hand, my adolescent hatred inscribed both backwards and forwards across his forehead. I mean, to me, that's just, who would not want to finish a book with a first paragraph like that? (laughs) It's fantastic. All right, so Po 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 po, I hope I said it seven times by Daniel Hoffman. That's my endorsement.
1: Fantastic, Dan. What do you have?
2: You know, it's winter movie season. Uh that means there are a million great movies coming out. Just this week there's like seven Oscar hopefuls coming out in limited release soon to expand across the country. There's one that I think is flying a little under the radar. Unnecessarily so, and I love it so much, and I want to make sure that people see it. Uh, it's the new Elmodovar movie, Julieta, which uh, opens in New York on Wednesday of this week and will soon come to an art house theater near near you. Uh, it is completely beautiful. It is based on three stories by Alice Munro, an author you may know and love, or if you don't, you should. Um and it's a free adaptation of those three stories to make them in the end all about the same character at different stages of her life. That character is a woman named Julieta um, who is played uh, in her older incarnation in the movie by Emma Suarez and in her younger incarnation by Adriana Ugarte in an incredibly momentous and masterful double performance that is probably – considered in toto uh, my favorite female performance of this year the movie is beautiful and surprising and much more reserved in the sort of reserved almodovar mode not the madcap almodovar mode uh but so wonderful and i hope that people do not sleep on it because uh because it's great
3: wow i was already I really excited for really but alice Monroe meets almodovar that's, yes. that's sort of too much I know.
1: fantastic yeah um All right. I am going to uh, endorse this week, um, bribing me with, uh, swag bags and goodies because it. (laughs) <laughs> apparently works. Merge Records sent me, uh, a listener uh, who works at Merge Records sent me a pile of their new stuff, all, I have to say almost all of which I completely loved including the new Lamp Shop record, whatever just totally hit my sweet spot um, which is indie rock and my vanity and when those two come together there's no stopping me but of them, one album I really really love and I do want to push on people in, in clean conscience I would have done it either way um, Teenage Fan Club has been around now for close to 30 years, it's unbelievable to think how pop time turned out to be elastic and not strictly chronological or calendrical, right? Like, so you go back and you think, okay, Stevie Wonder did this in six years, or or the Beatles did that all of that in six years, um, and, and yet it feels as though Teenage Fan Club has had a shorter career than both of them, you know? I mean, p- people now sort of—it's as if time stopped in 1992 for— people who listen to um boys composing songs on electric guitars or something. I mean I think of them as a new band. I mean it just shows what a middle-aged sack of bullshit I am, but but 30 years these guys have been around. I mean we're talking about you know the distance you would travel from early Billy Holiday to the first Beatles record, you know, in terms of time, but it doesn't doesn't feel that way. Anyway, all of which is to say amazingly they've come out with their 10th album uh called here and it's beautiful it's just a really gorgeous soft liquid dusky melancholy middle-aged indie rock record i mean i i I urge people to listen to it um and to discover their music if they don't know and then almost every decade they come out with a classic and in between they come out with good records but bandwagon-esque and songs from northern britain are the ones you might know they're wonderful but here is right up there with those it's a beautiful beautiful record um Okay, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show you filled the big shoes uh, beautifully. Thanks. Dana, thank you so much. A total pleasure.
3: As always, Stephen.
1: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, Slate.com slash CultureFest, and you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, of course. Check out an entire roster of like and unlike shows. There's a diverse collection over there at itunes.com panoply, but they're all like us, completely excellent. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest for Dan Kois and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Happy holidays.